Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Mayer Evans, and I'm a student farm manager with the Yale Sustainable Food Program. I'm very excited to be in the studio today with Jane Owen. Jane Owen is a horticulturalist, writer, radio TV broadcaster, traveler, and teacher. She is currently a senior editor on the Financial Times, and I'm stoked to talk with her. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Ryan. This, this may be kind of a basic question to, to start an interview off with, but could you provide us with a definition of, of the word garden? That's a killer question. That's a really unfair question. <laughs> okay, let me ask you. So, um, should a garden uh, always... How do you define it? What are the limiting factors? Should a garden always be outdoors? Not necessarily. Lots of indoor gardens. Should it all have always have plants in it? Nope. Look at various Japanese gardens, Zen gardens, for instance. Um, is it related to size? Well, I can think of things that are called gardens, landscape gardens, which run for hundreds of thousands of acres. Um, I can also remember making miniature gardens um, on the top of biscuit tins when I was a child. So in other words, no, I cannot define the word garden. So that's a really embarrassing start, isn't it? <laughs> not, not particularly, but what, what kind of gardens have, have you tended to work with or, or been, been drawn to in the past? Well, um, I think that my, my very first job actually was in a public park in London called Waterloo Park, which is right by Marx's grave for anyone who's interested. Um, and that was a very traditional park with bedding out and fine trees. It was planted in the Victorian times. And so I have a great uh, soft spot for that sort of park. Um, but I also love very English gardens. Um, I have made a few myself. And that means lots of pretty plants and uh, lots going on and lots of seasonal change. But equally, I also like um, the sort of landform gardens made by your countryman, uh, Charles Jenks, and uh, who is a friend, and uh, his garden of co cosmic spe speculation. Um, he made that in the Scottish borders with his late wife, uh, Maggie Keswick, is a spectacular piece of art and landscape and one which is all, always rates as one of my top gardens of the world. Then equally, I think there are a lot of uh, the Kyoto Gardens in uh, Japan, which I find extraordinarily moving in their rhythm and their simplicity. Um, and then you, you roll through Europe and you think of um, some of the Italian gardens, um, particularly Renaissance gardens like um, Vela d'Este and so on, which are all about being sh showing off and these magnificent displays and being cross and up about not having been made Pope and, and retaliating by making this spectacular garden. So I like the reasons behind gardens as well as the gardens themselves. But there is so much to choose from. And then this weekend, um, I've just come back from seeing Innisfree Landscape um, up in New York State. I don't know if you've been to it, Ryan. No, I haven't. Well, I last saw it 15 years ago, and it's. I think that in my work I see a lot of gardens, and just once a year, maybe once every two years, you see a garden which really moves your soul, and Innisfree is one of those. And I was very worried about going back to see it because I wondered if it would live up to my memory. 
and it surpassed my memory. It is a wonderful landscape. And for any anyone listening who hasn't seen it, it's two hours drive from Yale. Um, it is um, a contemplation. Visiting it is a contemplation. And I will say only that it is a piece of landscape revealed with such man-made skill that you don't really see that it's revealed or that a man has touched it or a person has touched it um, until you really start examining the the landscape. It's wonderful. Such craft, such oh, yeah. care. When When did you first become interested in gardens? And then related to that, when did you start to view gardens as, as works of art? Because a lot of the stuff you just said, you know, you're pulling a lot from, you know, artistic theory or like modes of artistic critique of, of certain images or of certain spaces. So when when did that transition occur? Did they happen at, at the same time? I, I come from a family which has had gardens knocking around for really since the 18th century. And so growing up, the talk was of landscape and form and plants. And so when I went to school and I found that people weren't talking about these things and they thought I was a freak because I was, I realised that, that I was odd. My, my background was odd. But it had given me a foundation which um, I've always loved um, and it just feel, feels very natural to me. And so, for instance, my one of my ancestors is uh, Sir Francis Dashwood who... Um, was the chancellor in the 18th century in the UK. And he built uh, a remarkable garden at um, West Wickham, which is um, just outside London, which is a landscape garden and very beautiful and odd, strange. Um, So there's that sort of uh, landscape which references works of art and references various cultural icons as you walk through it. And as an 18th century person, you would have known how to read that landscape. Um, And then... There are more recent works, uh, you know, like the Garden of Cosmic Speculation and indeed Innisfree, which again reference poetry in the the form of uh, Innisfree's case. Uh, So to me, they resonate with with art. And if even even a very sort of mundane plot where someone has just poured a lot of care and thought and attention into planting serried ranks of marigolds or something equally boring um it, it is a sort of art and it, it's it's um it's it's someone's very personal art and so uh even if i don't like a garden i always bear that in mind so if a conversation exists between a landscape and art or a garden and art I'd like to maybe try and hold up a parallel between your your work in media. You, you've written for several publications. Uh, you've done work with BBC. Uh, is there a conversation that exists for you between your work in media and your work in gardens? Yeah, constantly, because um, I, I veered between the two all, all my life. And I currently I'm, I'm staff on the Financial Times, which doesn't seem the most obvious place for a landscaper and gardener to be, you know, which is what I am. <laughs> and maybe the editor will think otherwise now and feel that I should find work elsewhere, like gardening and landscaping. But actually, um, it is very important that a lot of the ideas and the images that are generated in landscapes and gardens are not only um, broadcast and um, published, but they are explained and interpreted. And I think that you only get the, the full richness out of these um, these things when you have a debate around them. Just going to see them without any debate is nothing. 
one one debate you recently came out with with a piece titled London's green spaces are for contemplation not for rock and roll uh, th- this seems to be a matter, it's an issue of, right, the political uses or social uses of public spaces. Could you comment a bit more on that, that article and then what's your larger idea surrounding, you know, the, the uses of public gardens should be? This is such a big question for, for the 21st century, isn't it? And for your generation, especially because, um, you know, we've just, world has just crossed that tipping point. More than half the population now lives in cities. And so we had to really get real. We had to get very serious about our parks because um, for um, pre-industrial revolution, parks were irrelevant in the sense that they, they are now needed. But I think in industrial societies and post-industrial societies, in crowded cities, parks are actually a necessity. And I still think that there is no understanding about just how important that that is, that parks are. Um, We roll out statistics after statistics after reports explaining the health benefits, the environmental benefits from flooding to air quality to air cooling, you name it. Um, And those have uh, massive economic implications. Um, For instance, in the the UK alone, the latest report, a a government-funded report, on um, parks suggests that if um, all the population had easy access to well-maintained green space, we would save $2 billion a year on healthcare. Well, that is not insignificant. That really matters. That's a massive number. That is a massive number, isn't it? And that's on our tiny little island. So if you start um, pushing those figures and those um, thoughts across the, the pond to the states, you know, I'm sure that there will be reports which, which tell similar stories. So the reports are out there, and we all know, um, particularly you and I and uh, people in this, uh, this community, the importance um, day-to-day of being in green space and of enjoying real space. We know it from a personal point of view. But I still don't think that it's properly understood. And the governments are still not protecting uh, green space as as they should. And the point I was making in that feature, um, which was really about royal parks in London, which may sound rather an absurd um, idea, but royal parks are 5,000 acres in central London. I mean, that's an extraordinary chunk of central London. They were given to the public in 1851. And since, um, particularly since the austerity times that we've been in since 2008, um, government funding has, has nosedived. And so the parks have been left to fend for themselves largely. And they're, they're doing that. They're doing their best. And they're doing things like putting on massive rock concerts. Well, actually, they aren't generating enough money from those concerts. Anyway, that's one point, but that's slightly irrelevant. But more to the point, I think there are better ways of using the parks to generate money. Or, better still, follow the American example, um, particularly in Central Park, of getting these um, philanthropists to really help, either in kind of actually working in the parks or by giving money. And I've been really impressed by working with um, Colleen, who uh, at um, the forestry school, who is doing this massive work um, in the parks in New Haven. 
And I gather that she brings in um, the local communities as well as the students. And so it seems to me there are some really fine examples um, coming up which the world needs to watch very carefully and follow. And that will give us hope and I hope models um, for the future. Yeah, it's actually surprising you bring up Colleen and then her work with the Urban Resources Initiative. I'm going to be working working with them this summer, which, well, you, which like, is so incredible. Thank yeah. heavens. Well, get it out there. Once you've done the work, you need to tell the world about it. Tell me about it. So to, to hop to another island, uh, a while back you wrote a few pieces on, on a visit to Cuba. Uh, did you find any models or systems or examples or stories from, from your visit in Cuba that you'd like to share with us today? Well, I I went to Cuba. I'd wanted to go for many, many years. So I was very excited about going. And, you know, I mean, maybe I just hit a bad f- couple of weeks in, in Cuba, but I was very shocked by what I saw. And as I say, it may just been a very limited view of um, Havana and um, uh, some other parts of the islands. But um, I was shocked at how badly the people were eating. They were eating, uh, to my mind, terrible food, absolutely terrible food, when um, that island is fertile and it should be able to grow magnificent uh, crops and uh, quite a lot of them. So I I was just left baffled as to why there wasn't a proper programme of feeding the people properly. And I, I actually left quite upset. And what, I never really food, wanted to go back. What food were they eating? Well, it, it was essentially uh, some of the nastiest spaghetti I've ever tasted in my life with a sort of tin tomato splodge on top. And, you know, th- there was very little fresh uh, fresh produce. Uh, we were there at a time of year where there should have been lots of fresh produce. And the, the fresh produce there was was being sold. It's that two-economy two, uh, system uh, and, and it was being sold on the expensive economy system, whereas the the local people's um, system didn't just the shops did, just didn't have those didn't have the stuff. <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> and um, yeah, so, so there is very little fresh food. <coughs> to to relocalize the, the conversation, what what trends do you see in regards to to youth being drawn to? horticultural work, gardening work, landscaping work. I know we were just sharing a conversation earlier about you going into a college or a university setting and realizing that the discourse that you had occupied growing up didn't match up with the academic discourse. And I think it's perhaps typical that, you know, the academy doesn't necessarily usher students in to, into into trades, into positions that require some manual work. What, what have you noticed in the UK and perhaps globally in regards to, to youth going into gardening work? Well, I... <clears throat> I'm, I continue to be shocked. I mean, in in the UK, there is a, a very um, long-lived snobbism about anything to do with manual labour and, as you say, trade, all those things. And so um, gardens and gardening and landscape is, is bunched in, in with that. And so there's a feeling that on the whole it is um, beneath intelligent people to get involved in things like gardens and landscape and maintenance and those, those sorts of things. Um, which I find, again, extraordinary because um, it needs terrific intelligence and imagination and creativity to to create these landscapes and also, much more important, um, to create enough food for this growing world. And that is going to need um, a kind of an overview, uh, a management system, um, an understanding of everything from statistics to how you grow food to how you... Um, you you 
communicate that food around the place. Um, th- these are all very complicated issues, and it needs some good brains on it. And so the idea that somehow um, an English major is rather more important and to be more admired um, than a horticulturalist or a landscaper or whatever is bizarre, because unless we get around that prejudice, we've got serious problems for, the, for, for, um, for your generation and uh, 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 forthcoming gen- generations. But, you know, um, you, you may, uh, f- I hope you find this, uh, this is not the case in the States, but certainly in the UK, um, horticulture courses are almost non-existent. There are very few apprentice schemes anymore. They all they were all killed off at the end of the 20th century. And so there's been a valiant attempt to reinstate some apprentice, uh, apprentice schemes, but a lot of the skills are getting lost. And because there isn't the proper respect around these subjects, there are a few organisations in, um, in the UK, like the Royal Horticultural Society, which are trying very hard to uh, reinvent these apprenticeship schemes and the skills. But it's difficult. And then, then I look at the shining beacon of um, the School of Forestry and I see Mark Bonford's work and, you know, I am given hope and I really hope there is a lot of international attention on what he and you are doing there because it's very, very important. And his idea, I love his phrase, um, food brings everyone to the table and his idea that you bring not only academia at an institution like Yale, but you bring the people who are keeping their infrastructure going. You bring them all to the table because they all have stuff to offer. And I think that Mark has done fantastic work there. And that's also helped by Dean Crane, who seems to have this wonderful handle on how you pull together various different and disparate disciplines. Unless there is that understanding between disciplines, um, you know, Bluntly, the world's stuffed. So, um, can I say stuffed? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and well, and on that note, I, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your day for thank this you. wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Rod. Very good interview. <laughs>